terrifying, terrifying when you know all the faces. Uh, it's better to have just people you don't know. <laughs> and people you won't see again, even better. But I will have to see all of you again, and again, and again. So, yeah. With that being said, let's buckle up. Um, if you guys don't have a Bible and like paper Bibles, uh, Dave Fishley, he did not mean to sit there, but we'll use him, is uh, sitting right next to where our paper Bibles are, so grab a Bible. If you like electronic things, uh, please pull up um, Malachi on your phone, and that is in the Old Testament. But I really want us to stay faithful to the text, and I want you to engage with it, and so please pull it up. We are um, in this series called Expectantly Waiting, and we're looking at four attributes of our Messiah. We are looking at our God as one who is righteous, one who is just, one who is mighty, and shepherd. We are following, as Mike said last week, the lectionary, which is a collection of Bible readings scheduled to be read in a particular day of the year. And it's cool because there are many, many churches around the world in different languages and different contexts going through the same text with us today. And um, the reading for today is in the book of Malachi, and we are going to park it at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of 3. Um, if you have a paper Bible and you have no idea how to find Malachi, you want to go to where the New Testament starts, Matthew, flip like a couple of pages before, two, three pages, and you have arrived. So, we are in the second Sunday of Advent. Okay, hold on, because Tyler said, make sure you have a timer. He's not here, so I don't have someone to give me the evil eye. So, okay, good. So, we are in the second Sunday of Advent. We are in a season of waiting for the birth of Jesus. It's a four-week period on our calendars that we culminate with the celebration of the birth of Jesus on December 25th. And Advent, like Minda was saying, might be a season for some of you that is filled with those little chocolate calendars where you open the window and eat the little morsel, and my kids love that. Um, it's also a season of lighting candles, decorating our homes, wrapping presents, singing carols, listening to Christmas music, elves on shelves, uh, pictures with Sienna, cookie exchanges, Christmas cards, ugly sweaters, I mean, you get the picture. Or... Um, Aaron's going to blow your mind. If you are Colombian, like me, then you have large nativity scenes, larger than life, with like train tracks and helipads and totally historically accurate. And uh, it, they take entire rooms and lots of candles. And of course, hello, baby Jesus, who, by the way, has to be hidden because baby Jesus does not come out and play until December 24th. Because why are you celebrating the birth of someone if you're looking at that someone every single day? There has to be some expectation. So there is some baby Jesus, there is novenas, there's velitas, which is little candles, empanadas, and of course, buñuelos, which are like our little uh, round, cheesy things, delicious. So I do a lot of Advent, just looks different. But Advent really is more than that. Advent is more than an invitation to yearly remember Jesus' birthday. The season of Advent provides us with a unique look into the past, the present, and a look into the future. So I'm going to argue today that Advent is both a celebration of what has already happened and a celebration of what is to come. A celebration of what has already happened 
and a celebration of what is to come. So let me set the stage for you. Um, we can look at uh, Malachi, Aaron. I found him on the Instagram. No? There you go. I got that uh, of his uh, personal page. It's a great picture. So uh, Malachi is the last of the 12 minor prophets. It is the last book of the Old Testament. And the book reads like a dialogue between God and the people. If you are a Bema, uh, Bema person, like my small group, I totally drank the Kool-Aid, then Marty Solomon would tell you it's totally a Q&A. Because what happens is that um, the Lord is going to make a statement, the people are going to respond to that statement or complain to that statement, and then, or ask a question, and the Lord is going to answer. So it's very much a, a back and forth. Malachi is intended for a post-exilic audience. See, that's like, I don't know, $1.25, if every fancy word is 25 cents, that was a lot. A post-exilic audience. And that's going to mean a lot for us in a second. That means it's the group of people that are coming back from Babylon. And nerd alert, if you're not nerdy and don't like history, sorry. I am super nerdy and I love history. I have undergraduate degree in history and religion, and my minor and my specialty was Jewish studies. So when Mike said Malachi, I was like, yes, nerding out. So this is going to be super fun for me, but not for you, but I don't care because this is my time. It's so exciting. So we have the people of God. They are the people of Abram, and they are God's people. Then after Abram, you have Isaac. After Isaac, you have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons are what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And we're going to have a whole lot happen to these people, not in this book, but through the Old Testament. You know that these 12 tribes, they're going to end up in Egypt. In Egypt, they're going to become slaves. Uh, you end up meeting Moses in the Old Testament. They're going to be delivered out of Egypt, but then they get lost and wandering in the desert. There's this fight to get into the promised land. It's a pretty complicated history, but there are still the 12 tribes. And then the people are going to ask for leaders. God is going to give them the judges. And then the people are going to say, you know what? We actually want a king. And so God provides Saul. And after Saul, you're going to have David. And after David, you're going to have Solomon. And then comes the period that we actually turn in right now. is uh, when Solomon's son, you don't need to remember the name. After Solomon's son, the kingdom or the 12 tribes are going to divide. You're going to have 10 tribes or 10 brothers and their people, if you will, going to the north. That's going to be the northern kingdom. And in the Old Testament, you're going to be... Um, told that they're called Israel, and then you're going to have two, the southern tribes that are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So that's why you call it the territory of Judah. That's why the people end up being called Jews, because it was the majority of the people of those two southern tribes were the people of Judah. So now you have these 12 tribes divided into northern and southern. And so what happens, um, Aaron, you can move to the next slide. You have three major crises in Israel history. And I wish I could just run over there and touch. I'm a touching teacher. So the first one is the Assyrians. It was a huge empire. And the Assyrians are going to come into the northern territory and then are going to destroy them. So all the ten tribes to the north are going to be wiped out. And the Assyrians were pretty wicked in that when they came in, they grabbed the people and they took them into their territory. That's why you see all those purple arrows that say Assyria, because they take the people out. 
And then what Assyria would do is they would repopulate that territory with other people. So that's what happens to the northern tribes. And you're like, yeah, but what happened to the last two? What happened to Judah and Benjamin? What happened to those people? They had a treaty with Assyria, so nothing happened to them. Except that if you know history, this is where you get super excited. The Assyrians are going to get destroyed by the Babylonians. And so, well, it doesn't work if you have a treaty with the Assyrians and now it's Babylon time. Well, it's not really going to cover you. So the Babylonians are going to enter the picture, and the Babylonians are going to take over. And so that's what's going to happen to the southern tribes. The temple is going to be destroyed, that beautiful temple that was built by Solomon. It's going to be destroyed, and the Babylonians are a little bit different in that they don't take everybody. They take the key leaders, they take the politicians, they take a lot of the religious leaders, they take the people with money, and they leave some people behind. And so that's the period I'm referring to as the exile. The people of Judah and Benjamin, who survived the Assyrians, are now being taken by the Babylonians out of their context of Judah and where Jerusalem is, and they're being moved to Babylon. They're being moved to Babylon, and if you were little like me and you like coloring pages, you maybe heard about Daniel and the lions, right? Daniel is in Babylon with the people of the exile. But then if you also shuffle your Bible, you know that there's Jeremiah, and he's talking about the, the destroyed city. Well, he's one of the people that was left behind. So the people of God are divided in two places. So you have the people in the exile and the people that are left behind. So when I tell you that the text for today is post-exilic, it means that at some point the people went back. And you're like, wait, but aren't they under Babylon? Yes, but history, y'all. That's why you study history. The Babylonians are going to die. They're going to get conquered by the Persians. So we go Assyria, Babylon, boom, Persia. And the Persian guy, Cyrus the Great, is going to say, you know what? If you all want to go back home, go. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to throw some money so you can rebuild your temple. And Cyrus the Great allows the people of Judah to go back to their land, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. These are the people that we are encountering with Malachi. Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. So he's, a, he's addressing a particular people in a particular time. And if you know anything about history teachers, we're super annoying because we think that context matters. Context matters a lot when we study any text. We need to know the circumstances that led to that discussion between the author and the people. And we also need to know the audience. So who's Malachi writing to? In John Tollock's book, The Old Testament Story, he explains <clears throat> that the Jews had returned home with big plans only to see them dashed by reality. They had left, and then when they come back, it doesn't really feel the same. It doesn't look the same. They don't have the same rights. Everything's going to look very different. And so if you read the entire book of Malachi, you're going to see that it's a bunch of disillusioned people that are basically saying, what's the point? What's the point of following these rules? What's the point of offering sacrifices? So it's a bunch of people that are going through the motions of being religious, but not really feeling it. And so there's a lot of things that are being claimed by God. It, they're basically, God is saying, you're robbing me of my tithes. You're going out there and you're marrying a bunch of foreign women and divorcing. And you're um, 
you are worshiping other gods, not me. And um, there's also a lot of wickedness happening. So there's a dual conversation in the text. The people of God are saying, where's the God of justice? There's a bunch of evil doing. There's a bunch of evil. Where's the God of justice? And the people within the church are also not really feeling it. So that's who's, um, who the text is being written to. So let's go to the text. I have so much stuff up here. Let's go to the text. We're going to Malachi 2, 17. I am using the NIV today. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? For I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So our text for today, 2.17, starts with the question, where is the God of justice? These disillusioned people ask God, where is this God? And why are these evildoers doing whatever they want, and God seems pleased with them. And God reminds them that he is the God of justice. God, in 3.1, says, the Lord you are seeking, the God of justice, is going to come back. And the word that is used in the Hebrew is the word mishpat. And mishpat in current or in modern Hebrew means law. That's it. So if we just want to be basic, then... Sure, justice could mean law. But in the biblical context, justice means fairness, rightness, rectitude, and that which is righteous. And the word used for righteous is tzedakah, which means right relationship with one another. So when we encounter this God that says, I am the one that will come, I am the one you are seeking, I am the God of justice, we cannot oversimplify. It means I am the God of fairness, rightness, rectitude, and of that which is righteous. The word mishpat shows up 419 times in the Old Testament. And the problem with the people that are asking for this just God, that are saying, where is this God of justice? is that they don't seem to understand that God is an equal opportunity God. Slight problem. If he judges the evildoers, 
then he's also going to judge the complainers. And he says, who can endure this truly just God? Who can endure the day of his coming? If, um, Aaron, I don't know if this is even possible, but if you go to 3-2 or if you're following on your Bibles or in your Bibles, he says that he will be like a refiner's fire. He will sit and judge like a refiner of silver, watching as the dross is burned away. I had to look that up. So like, what is dross? And the translation said scum, waste, impurity. I'm not really a fire person that spoke more to Tyler. Like, you know, you sit there in the refiner fire and wait for the scum. I was like, okay. Didn't really affect me. But then it says, he will be like laundry soap, widening clothes. So I'm a mom of three. Laundry speaks to me. Laundry. And the image with laundry here for me was that there are things that I need to have washed that I don't really want God to see. Like, yo, we even have to put our unthinkables and nameables. What's the expression? The whatever. Unmentionables. Yeah, I was like, the unsomething. You got to wash the unsomethings. And so I'm like, man, that is a lot of washing. And a very visual person, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't even imagine the many cycles I would be in that washing machine until I'm purely purified. Will I be still a little garment or will I just be threads? That, that image will stay with me. But God says, y'all, the wicked ones and the complainers, do you really want me to come? Do you really, can you really withstand what it would be like for you to be in front of these God of justice? And he carries on. He says, I will put you on trial. And depending on the translation, it either says trial or I will judge you. And so he says too, I will be quick to testify against all the evils. And the Lord continues saying, the liars, the oppressors, the wage thieves, the people that are unwelcoming. It's pretty clear what are those things that are considered evil doing. And what was important to me in that piece of the text is that God was watching, that he was very aware with the injustices that were going on in the world. He wasn't removed. It's not like he had completely checked out. He knew exactly what was going on. So this is problematic in the text. Our inability as human beings to truly stand guilt-free before a just God that rings true for humanity, and that rings true for us today as well. And thankfully, there's some good news in the text. Um, Aaron, if you could go to 3.6. This, honestly, if, if you have found me annoying and can't stand my accent, at least take these five words and I'll call it a day and I'll feel real good. I, the Lord, do not change. Let me say that again. I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the people of Jacob, are not destroyed. This is the good news of the text. God is a promise keeper. And he made a promise to the people of Abram. He made a promise to the children of Jacob that they would be his people and that he would be their God, and he's going to uphold that covenant. He does not 
change. He had a rescue plan from the beginning. He had a rescue plan from the beginning. He had a Messiah that would come. And he talks to us about preparing the way for his arrival in 3.1. But this is excellent news for the people of Malachi. Because the excellent news is, you guys, complainers, you couldn't survive a just God. But here's the good news. I do not change, and you're the people of the covenant. I do not change, and you are my people. This is good news. This is very good news for the people of Malachi. And you're like, okay, great, but that's a long time ago. Yeah, but this is really good news for us too, the people of the 21st century, because we get to remember that God honored his covenant. We get to remember that we have a God of promise who does not change, who honored the covenant. And so we remember that God stayed faithful to his promise. We remember that God did not destroy the people. Now we also remember that the people had to wait. And it was a long wait. Y'all, it was a long wait. But in the season of Advent, we get to remember that the Messiah did come. He came 2,000 years ago to a teenage girl, Mary, in Bethlehem. And his birth was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. I argue some of us <clears throat> do a better job remembering, like, I mean, y'all, helipad, train station. But enough said, we remember that God fulfilled his promises. We remember that he's a God of the covenant. So as I argued from the beginning, the season of Advent is a celebration of what has already happened. But wait, there's more. I feel like Oprah. A celebration of what is to come. The waiting is hard. There was a 400-year period of waiting between Malachi saying, prepare the way. There is a plan. You will not be judged. There is a way. There is a plan. 400 years. 400 years, if I'm generous... Like, assuming you're in good health, that's maybe, what, four generations? Being more realistic is more like five generations. So you have this message that needs to be heard, and the baton needs to be passed for one generation, one generation, one generation. I can't do my fingers. One generation. And then that's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of faithfulness. That's a lot of trusting. And this is what speaks to us today. I don't even know the day. December 5th, 2021. There is a lot of suffering around us. So I can relate to the people of Malachi that are asking, where is God? Where is this God of justice? Does he not care about the suffering of the people? Is he done being just? Where is the God of justice? And guys, these texts... As someone who works in impoverished communities, as someone that works in the margins, this text is a healing balm to my heart because God says, I am the God you are seeking. I am just. And I told you, God says, I do not change. So he is just. The Lord of Lords is a just God. I am the one you are seeking, he says in the text. He is the God of justice. God is a just God who hates evil and wickedness. And we try to domesticate God 
But we got to remember, he hates evil. He hates wickedness. And he hates the injustices that he sees in the world. He hates evil doing. He hates that this week, four young people were killed at their school. He hates that. He hates that there's violence in our streets. He hates that there's violence in our hearts. He hates that we're not in right relationship with each other. The God of Mishpat is a God of fairness and rightness and righteousness, meaning right relationship with one another. And God does not change. God was the God of Mishpat, and God is the one that longs for Mishpat, for justice. A justice that is restorative. A justice that seeks out the vulnerable. A justice that takes steps to advocate for the vulnerable. God was concerned with justice at the beginning. God is concerned with justice now. And God is going to be concerned long after I die with justice. And what's good for us today is not only to know that he's concerned, but that he has said that he will return. And he's going to make all things new. The God of justice, whom we are seeking, is coming. And this keeps me going. I can relate to the people crying out to God, asking, where is the God of justice? I have cried many times for God to appear or to show up. Times where because of work, I have been in the midst of real, real suffering with absolutely nothing to offer. Times like when my first students back in Gainesville, Florida, migrant workers at a blueberry farm, were losing their fingers because the farm owner would not print the instructions for the pesticide in Spanish. Where is the God of justice? Or when my fifth grade student accidentally shot his little sister, my kindergarten student, with a gun that was left loaded and unattended in their home, where is the God of justice? Or when ICE conducted raids and my students, my little babies, came to school now orphaned because their parents were deported, where is the God of justice? Or when I had to hold weeping mothers in shelters in Juarez, Mexico, women that were pushed out of their homes because of violence, and they were not being able to seek asylum in this country, where is the God of justice? And the list goes on and on and on in my personal life. Where is the God of justice? I am the Lord you are seeking, says the Lord. Malachi 3.6, I do not change. Where is the God of justice? I am the God, the Lord you are seeking. Malachi 3.6, I do not change. Where is the God of justice? I am the Lord you are seeking. I do not change. 
Guys, God was concerned with justice at the beginning. He is concerned with justice now and tomorrow and until the day he returns. And that's what we hold so precious in Advent, that he will return, that I can expectantly wait for this just God who does not change, who is going to come back to make all things new. Mishpat, justice, is very much a part of God, of who he is and his character, of who he is and his character. Justice, then, is an integral part of our Christian faith. Justice is not a program. Justice is not political. Justice is not a part of anyone's political platform. Justice is not an American creation. Justice is not blue. Justice is not red. Justice, mishpat, is very much a part of who God is. And though it may have been the word of the year in 2018, according to the Webster Dictionary, Justice is not a fad. Justice is not a thing. And it's not even a strong word that should freak some of us out. It is an attribute of God. It is fairness, correctness, right relationship. And so the season of Advent calls us to remember a God who fulfills his promises. Take time. Remember. Prepare your heart. Celebrate that he fulfilled that promise. Celebrate that the Messiah was born. Celebrate that because of that, we don't have to be freaking out about the fact that we can't withstand just um, judgment. Celebrate, but also wait. Await. Celebrate what is to come. This God of justice, concerned with the right relationship between his people. And he is coming to make all things new.